Hello, and welcome back to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about why trees and shrubs develop brown leaves in the middle of the summer. Utah State University student horticulturist and intern Annie Smith bakes a delicious recipe, zucchini enchiladas. And we finally end with why you should not be spraying weeds in your lawn in July or August, and some other strategies to help control them until you can finally spray. This year we had a really prolonged cool and wet spring. And so the plants were loving it. They were putting on a lot of new growth. And, you know, sometimes I think the plants put on a little too much growth. They were a little too happy. And then we went from cool and wet to dry and hot almost immediately. And so that's hard for, it's hard for me, but it's also really hard on trees and shrubs to transition like that. The other thing that uh, that cool, wet temperatures and weather brought are a lot of fungal pathogens, a lot of leaf spots. Uh, There's one specifically called anthracnose that'll get on sycamores and maples and oaks. That brownness or the, the, the spotting will actually follow the vein of the leaf. So if you see brown leaves that kind of typically follow the vein of the, of the leaf, then that's very typically anthracnose, which you'll see the symptoms this time of year, but there's nothing to do about it. Once the warm and dry hits, the, the fungus kind of stops its growth and just kind of sits there. So I'll post a fact sheet in the show notes with pictures of anthracnose. So what are some other causes of the leaf browning? Things that we plant aren't really adapted here to our dry climate. Uh, horse chestnut comes to mind. It's a tree that has really big, broad leaves. Uh, the leaflets are shaped like the palm of your hand. Even Japanese maples. And they'll grow here, but our really dry air and our hot summers are really hard on them. And so you'll get what we refer to as summer scorch. And that just when those plants can't conduct enough water up to the edges of the leaves and they'll start to burn on the edges. And that's just due to those plants not being adapted very well to our arid climate. Are there other species that you see this commonly on? Uh, Norway maple is another one that you'll see it on. Because again, it's the species that have really big flattened leaves, just a lot of surface area to cool. Now, are the trees harmed by this? Obviously, the leaf is the factory that produces all the photosynthate and the sugars the plant needs. And the, the tree isn't killed outright. It, it will be stunted because some of those factories are diminished because of the scorch on the, on the surface of the leaves. But summer scorch typically doesn't kill the plant. And in Japanese maple specifically, you'll get the, the summer scorch on the edges of the leaves. But if it's drastic enough and they're in full sun... I've seen a lot of branch dieback, tip dieback on the branches. And I know somebody listening is going to say, well, I've got a Japanese maple in full sun. It looks great. And that may be true for the first 10 years of its life. But as trees age, their demand for water increases. And so I was just talking to a, a client this week about their Japanese maple. And she's like, man, this thing's looked great for 10 years. And now it's starting to die back. And I think after talking to her, what we figured out was 
it's in full sun and and just the the amount of water that those plants need as they mature is just outdone by the arid climate that we live in. Have you noticed any insect pests or other, I guess what we would call arthropods that can cause this? Yeah, actually, I got a phone call last month of a lady that was freaking out because she lived right next to the mountains. There was a lot of native scrub oak, big tooth maples, quaking aspen, and large swaths of these trees were were brown and, and she thought were dying. So I took a jaunt up the mountains, I mean, and uh, found canker worms just chewing. They call them loopers. They're just a caterpillar that will chew on the leaves of native trees. And they were just prolific. And I think with with those types of insects, they're fairly cyclical. You know, you'll have them really bad one year. And if we have a harsh winter or really good bird control, then you won't see them for a few years. But this year it turned out to be really bad for canker worms along our foothills. Another one I see is spider mites. They're not an insect technically, but you can see them if you if you see a tree and it looks like the, the leaves are just kind of prematurely coloring or bronzing, and you take that leaf and shake it over, tap it over a white piece of paper and watch the dust settle. And if that dust starts to move around, those are spider mites. You can see them with the naked eye, but they're very small. They love the heat. They, they're attracted to dusty conditions. And so I've seen actually willows, honey locusts, with infestations where you'll start to get leaves dropping and and it looks like they're desiccating or drying out. But if you look at under underneath the leaves and like I say, tap it onto a white piece of paper, you'll see a, a lot of spider mites. I've especially seen them down here on burning bush, tomatoes, beans. They're they're no respecter of species. And it seems like that two spotted is the most common, but there are many of them that folks are having problems with right now. As far as maintaining trees and shrubs, especially that are susceptible to summer leaf scorch, what are your recommendations as far as fertilizer and irrigation? So as far as fertilizer goes, I would do that really, really early, even in the dormant season when there's still snow on the ground. Um, that way the plants can can push that new growth when the, the weather's cooler and then as things uh, heat up, that new growth can kind of harden off and, and you don't get that new growth. Usually past mid-June, it's the, the leaves have stopped expanding and you, the tree just kind of maintains what it has. I typically d- tell people not to fertilize in the summer when it comes to woody plants. Anything, you know, past the end of June, don't fertilize because those plants, again, they want to harden off. They want to go through the summer. And then they want to shut down in the fall. So if you've been fertilizing throughout the summer, it's hard for those plants to to kind of want to shut down. It's almost like giving caffeine to a toddler right before bedtime. I've accidentally done that. (laughs) As far as irrigation goes, what are your recommendations? Deep and infrequent. You know, turf grass needs fairly consistent water to look good through the hot summer months. And that. Even even trees in a lawn setting, they're picking up some of that water, but the water for your lawn is only going down a few inches, and the roots of trees are a lot deeper than that. So I recommend once every other week, once a week maybe, a deep soaking on trees and shrubs and, and give them that deep cycle and then let them dry out. You know, Mother Nature's cruelest joke is too much water 
and root rot have the same symptoms of drought stress. And so if you're overwatering a tree or a shrub and you start getting the brown leaves, automatically your mind goes, so I got to water more. But that's another problem with uh, trees and shrubs browning out in the summertime is excessive water. So again, deep water, let that dry out in between times. And, uh, you know, even brand new trees, it's probably where people mess up the most is, is overwatering new trees. When I plant a new tree and I planted thousands, I'll, I'll water them. I'll give them about five to 10 gallons once a week. And that's it. And I'll let that soil dry down and then water again a week later. So overwatering is a major cause of leaf browning, which is counterintuitive. And so do you see any situations where underwatering is a problem? <laughs> In my yard, because I'm lazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, most air on the side of too much. So if you were recommending some tree species as far as resistant to summer leaf scorch, more adapted to our climate, what are a few that you might recommend for a homeowner? But as far as water adapted, um, honey locusts are good. Our native big tooth maple is really good. Tatarian maple is a smaller tree that does really well. Uh, Japanese Zelkova, they tend to do really well, even though they, they tend to need a little bit more water than most. I'm kind of a tree geek. I, I love the weird stuff. Ginkgo tree is one of the most hardy, um, adaptable tree species that we have. It, it's prehistoric. I mean, it, it goes clear back to the dinosaur era. Not a, a recorded pest or disease on them. The, the trees that I really am vibing on lately are the hybrid elms. There's a, there's a huge push. Ever since Dutch elms disease wiped out the American elms, there's been a big movement in the tree world of getting resistant species of elms. And I've planted two in my yard that I can't irrigate because of my water rights. And they've pushed more growth this year with very little water than any other tree in my yard. So I'm a big fan of the hybrid elms. Not the Siberian trashy elms that seed a lot. Elms that, that have names associated with them. The one I have is Greenstone. There's another um, Colonial Spirit. So as long as they have a name associated with them, they're a cultivar. They're a cultivated variety of an elm. So you got to know that they're going to be really big 50, 60 foot trees. But I live in an area with really high wind and I just want some windbreak and, and they're doing their job. You know, another one that is one of my favorites is a bur oak. They're hardy as nails. And there's some at the Botanical Center in Kaysville that we planted it, watered it the first year, and then walked away. It hasn't had supplemental irrigation for 15 years. And it looks great. So as far as the tree species, I really like that list you uh, put out there. And then as far as shrubs, are there any that you are particular for as far as being drought hardy and just easy to maintain? Um, Mugo pines. I, I know there's a lot of variability on size and they're kind of a shrub of the 70s, but that's a good hardy one. Uh, I like these better than a lot of junipers, and I know of some in Clearfield in sandy soil right on 300 North at that shutdown gas station that have had not had supplemental irrigation in 20 years, and they're still just fine. Yeah, and and you mentioned junipers. Not a lot of people like junipers, but the carpet type or the horizontal junipers, they're very nice. Uh, Very flat. They don't get above six inches tall. 
and just will creep along a hillside. Uh, sumac, but there's one called Grolo. It's about three to four feet tall, six feet wide, has amazing fall color, no supplement or ir- irrigation, and it'll, it'll do great. So those are some good suggestions. I mean, what do you think about just like old-fashioned lilacs and some of the viburnums like snowball bush? I have a love affair with lilacs. There's so many different types and colors and sizes. There's dwarf lilacs that stay less than four feet tall. And the fragrance, it's, it's hard to beat them. Another really fragrant shrub that's drought-resistant is the mock orange. And again, there's a lot of different sizes. There's one called Minnesota Snowflake, uh, Miniature Snowflake. There's there's some really nice, really drought-tolerant shrubs. You know, you brought up lilac. There's a lot of like homestead houses that get abandoned for decades. And you drive by in the spring and everything's dead around them, but the lilac is just blooming and doing great. We appreciate your time, J.D. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. We are back with a multi-talented horticulturist and Utah State University intern, Annie Smith. So what did you make this week? This week, I was trying to find a use for all of the gigantic zucchini in my parents' garden. And I made a chicken enchilada casserole, but instead of using tortillas, I used strips of zucchini. Which to me, you know, growing up, I honestly never liked zucchini. Because when I had it cooked, it was always cooked into a mush and always included the seeds. And so come to find out that zucchini isn't that bad. And I've just been amazed at how useful it is and the number of things that you can actually put it in. So what was the recipe? It's two medium-sized zucchinis, um, a can of chunk chicken, some Monterey Jack cheese or whatever cheese you prefer, white onion, paprika, garlic powder, cumin, chili powder if you like it spicy, and then a can of diced green chilies and some salsa or enchilada sauce and salt and pepper. So it's pretty standard fare for an enchilada casserole. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you used strips, thin strips of zucchini instead of the tortillas, which is a lot healthier, Mm -hmm. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I was kind of just making it as a Hail Mary to try something this week, but I thought it tasted much better than I expected and honestly much better than it looked because I don't think cooked zucchini is very pretty, but it was it was pretty easy to do and it didn't take too long. Well, and with this recipe, you know, my doctors have said reduce carbs, get more vegetables. And with the zucchini in it, with the chicken and the cheese, there's tons of protein and just very few carbs. I mean, there's some carbs in the cheese, but not many. And for me, this is a great substitute for something that my family eats a lot because we have a lot of enchilada casseroles. And so I really liked it. So as you were cooking this, can you describe what process you used to make the strips of zucchini? So what I did was I just took a vegetable peeler, like a standard one for potatoes or carrots, and I just went along the sides of the zucchini just in one direction until I got strips that were about an inch and a half to two inches wide, and then I would just 
switch and I would do about four sides per zucchini. But the important thing was to skip the seeds once you reach the layer of seeds, stop and switch to another side. So did you take the skin off first? So no, I didn't peel the zucchini all the way. I just took off the first two layers with the peeler and then each of the strips after that just had two tiny pieces of skin on the outside, which added some color and didn't really affect the flavor that much. Well, the skin's oftentimes more healthy, so I guess it's good we left some in. Yeah, a little bit. So, <laughs> Yeah, this was a really good recipe, and it, it did taste like the traditional enchilada casseroles I've had. And it's something that I think that we will incorporate more into our family to eat healthier and introduce our children to healthier food. So thank you. Happy to make stuff. Have a great day. You too. So I recently saw a Facebook post talking about lawn weeds and how to control them. One of the respondents to the post had mentioned several air quotes here, safe and unair quotes, herbicides to use on the lawn that had some pretty powerful lawn weed killing herbicides in them. The problem was, is that it was the complete wrong time of year to apply these herbicides. Lawn weed killers or dandelion killers that you purchase from the store almost always have dicamba in them and another chemical called 2,4-D. Both of these are chemically related and will kill a plant by causing very fast growth that eventually causes the cell walls to burst. And so what would happen if this person applied one of these lawn weed killers at the end of July or the 1st of August is that the lawn weed killer would most likely volatilize and turn into a gas. And this gas would drift in the wind and anything it ran into would be harmed. And so the results of this or the how the harm looks is that the new growth, so the new leaves and the new stems, will come out distorted and twisted. And a lot of times you see leaf cupping or other very strange growths from 2,4-D and dicamba. The other thing to be cautious with this is that dicamba is soil active, and if you spray it under trees and around shrubs that may have exposed roots or very shallow roots and that dicamba makes it to the roots, the plants will absorb it and you will get this same distorted damage. And so the middle of the summer when it's consistently above 90 degrees on a daily basis is not the time to be spraying a lawn weed killer. And so the question remains, what can I do about my lawn weeds? One thing is try to get your lawn healthy. The lawn should be mowed at a height of two and a half to three inches. By the time it's time to mow again, it will look a bit shaggy, but grass with longer leaf blades usually has deeper roots that also can make the grass more dominant in this little ecosystem and over time crowd out many weeds. We should not be applying a lot of lawn fertilizer right now either. If it is needed, I would actually recommend doing half applications because our Kentucky bluegrass or other cool season turf doesn't grow very fast in the middle of the summer. You notice that in the spring, 
you know, you have to bag and it takes twice as long to mow, but right now it's very easy to mulch the clippings back into the lawn and you can get done twice as fast. Physiologically, that grass just can't grow any faster than it is with how its genetics are. And so if you over-fertilize in the middle of the summer, what you actually do is oftentimes fertilize the lawn weeds because they are more able to grow in the middle of the summer a lot faster than a Kentucky bluegrass. Another aspect of lawn health is watering the turf correctly. A lot of times we have a tendency to water every day for 15 minutes, and this is just, just not a good water schedule. Instead, we should be watering two to three times a week for about 20 to 30 minutes per station. Doing this will drive water more deeply into the soil and force the grass to also grow roots more deeply into the soil. This makes it more drought hardy, but also helps it outcompete things like lawn grubs and diseases and also lawn weeds. Where possible, lawn weeds can be pulled by hand using a screwdriver or other similar devices. But for large-scale weed control, we need to wait until usually at least mid-September when we're consistently below 90 degrees and preferably below 85. This is the time weeds like Morning Glory and White Top should be sprayed to maximize their control. So be patient for now. Make sure you're mowing correctly, watering correctly, and fertilizing correctly. And within the next month and a half, the time will come to exact revenge on those lawn weeds. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension.